Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Nehemiah 11 through 12:26. And the officials of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who freely offered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, each lived in his own possession in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants. And some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem from the sons of Judah. Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, from the sons of Perez, and Maaseah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kolhazi, the son of Hazaiah, the son of Adaiah, the son of Joarib, the son of Zechariah, the son of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Now these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulolam, the son of Joed, the son of Padiah, the son of Kaliah, the son of Masiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of Jesaiah, and after him, Gabai and Salai, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was second in command of the city. From the priest, Jediah, the son of Joarib, Jachin, Sarai, and Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Merioth, the son of Ahitab, the leader of the house of God, and their relatives who did the work of the house, 822. And Adaiah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Peleliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pasher, the son of Malchijah, and his relatives, heads of fathers' households, 242. And Amishiah, the son of Azrael, the son of Ahiza, the son of Meshalimoth, the son of Imer, and their relatives, mighty men of valor, 128. And their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolim. Now from the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, the son of Azrakam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Bunai, and Shabbathai, and Joseph, Josephed, from the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the chief in the beginning, the thanksgiving and prayer, and Bakbukiah, the second among his relatives, and Abda, the son of Shamua, the son of Galal, the son of Jaduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. Now the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their relatives who kept watch at the gates were 172. <clears throat> the rest of Israel, of the priests and of the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, each one in his own inheritance. But the temple servants were living in Ophel and Ziha and Gishpah were over the temple servants. Now the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Benai, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, from the sons of Asaph, who were the singers over the work of the house of God. For there was a commandment from the king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. Pethahiah, the son of Meshazabel, the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was a king's representative in all matters concerning the people. Now as for the villages with their fields, some of the sons of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its towns, in Dibon and its towns, and Jechabazel and its villages, and in Jeshua and Moladah and Beth Pelet and in Hazar Shul, in Beersheba and its towns, and in Ziklag and Mekonah and its towns, 
and in Enrimon, and Zorah, and in Jarmuth, Zanoah, Adulam, and their villages, Lachish, and its fields, Azekah, and its towns. So they encamped from Beersheba as far as the valley Hinnom. The sons of Benjamin also lived in Geba onward at Michmash, and at Asia, and at Bethel, and its towns, and at Anathoth, Nob, and Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gidim, Hadid, Zebuim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the valley, of the valley of craftsmen. From the Levites, some divisions in Judah belonged to Benjamin. Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Edo, Ginnotai, Abijah, Mishamin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, and Jorib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, and Jediah. These were the heads of the priests and their relatives in the days of Jeshua. The Levites were Jeshua, Benuai, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who was over the songs of thanksgiving. He and his brothers also, Bakbukiah and Unai, their brothers stood opposite them in keeping their responsibilities. Jeshua became the father of Joachim, and Joachim became the father of Eliashib, and Eliashib became the father of jo Joida, and Joida became the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan became the father of Judah. Now in the days of Joachim, the priests, the heads of the father's households were of Sariah, Mariah, and Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehonan, of Malachi, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, of Meroth, Helkai, of Edo, Zechariah, of Genoath, Meshulam of Abijah, Zikri of Minimum, of Moadai Piltai, of Bilgah, Shamua, of Shemaiah Je Jehonathan, of Joyrib Mataniah, of Jediah, Uzai of Salai, Kalai of Amok, Eber of Hilkiah, Hashabiah of Jediah, Nathanael. As for the Levites in the days of Laishib, Joadiah, and John Johanan, and Jedua, the heads of the father's households were written down. The priests were also in the reign of Darius the Persian. The sons of Levi, the heads of the father's households, were written down in the book of Chronicles up to the days of Jonathan, the son of Eliashib. The heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the sons of Cadmiel, with their brothers opposite them to praise and give thanks by the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Madaniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers keeping watch at the storehouses of the gates. These served in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and the scribe. These are the words of the Lord. Good morning, church. You may be seated this morning, which is a little odd. Normally I will read the scripture passage for us before we begin our time of study. But this morning, David Garner graciously read through that passage for us. I appreciate that, David. Will help us devote more time to looking at the text in detail and the Lord sees in his infinite wisdom that it's kind for me to not have to suffer alone reading all of those names. So, thank you, brother. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, as we sang earlier this morning, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down and helps this word of God, this manna in our laps, become the food that we need for our souls. So we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to feast sumptuously this morning, and that we would be fed and full and strengthened for the work that you have for us this coming week. Help us to see Jesus, the name above all names. Let us worship him. 
Amen. Well, we do have a lot of text in front of us this morning, and before we begin this morning's scripture passage, I do want to address something that I wasn't able to cover in last week's sermon. You know that our church takes the Bible very seriously. We believe that Christ's word is for Christ's people, and we believe that that word begins in Genesis, and runs until the Amen of Revelation 22, verse 21. This also means we are not a part of what calls itself the gospel-centered movement. And as such, we will not be holding conferences making tearful appeals for women pastors in the near future. We are aiming to recover complete obedience to the Bible, all of it, which is exactly what the exiles in Nehemiah 10 we're intending what we read last week. Chapter 10, verse 29. They intended to keep and to do all of the commandments of Yahweh the Lord and His judgments and His statutes. Now I want you to notice something in this passage. They don't simply pledge their faith to Yahweh, as I mentioned last week, but a faith that will be proved by their obedience to the commandments of Yahweh. Jesus said the same in John 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. And a zeal, brothers and sisters, for this kind of piety is a very good thing. But there is a danger here. And our church should always keep it in mind. My former mentor, Ed Rosen, always said, People are like a grandfather clock. If the pendulum isn't swinging, the clock isn't working. We spend our lives often waffling from one extreme to the other. It is in the very nature of fallen humanity to wax between extremes. Licentiousness and legalism. Materialism and Gnosticism. Abusiveness and cowardice, which in many ways are actually the same thing. And I almost said racism and wokeism, but those are actually the same thing. <laughs> Think about the first exodus with me, brothers and sisters, led by Moses. It was delivered, the people were delivered from Egypt, brought safely to the promised land, and there they forgot about God. <coughs> Excuse me. They began worshiping idols and ended up with no king but their own appetites. They were a bunch of libertines, indistinguishable from the surrounding nations. Now you can see there a pendulum swing to the left. Think now with me about this second exodus that we're looking at in Nehemiah, and the one that began in Ezra. These people were attempting to correct the errors of their forefathers. They're covenanting to keep the whole law. They're admitting publicly their current struggles in public. The pendulum, you can see, is starting to swing back towards the right. But then, if you fast forward 450 years into the future, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And a holiness that is not of God or even obedience to God's law, but to commandments that are taught by men. The pendulum swings so hard back to the right and then the clock breaks. Be warned, Christ the King, if the enemy of your soul can't shackle you back to your former vices... He will enlist you in a quest pursuing ungodly virtues. Reformed brother Scott Tungay calls these purity spirals, is what he calls them. A pursuit of holiness that ultimately turns into a legalism. It's binding the conscience, either your own or someone else's, to something that Christ has not required of all believers. Let me give you an example. A father starts reading through church history. He wants to learn more about church fathers and 
those who have gone before. He flourishes as he learns from the Puritans and their writings. And then he wonders about earlier church history. Someone recommends that he reads the early church fathers. And so he does, and he begins to think through their ideas and some of the concepts of the Eastern Orthodox Church begin to make more and more sense to him. And then someone recommends that he picks up Thomas Aquinas. And before you know it, he tells his family that they are all going to convert to Roman Catholicism. It's a purity spiral. You see how it goes. Let me give you another example. A family feels convicted about getting their kids out of the government schools. They come to homeschool and they get resources from other families and read good books and they love how homeschooling serves their family. Dad oversees the content of his children's education. Mom feels like a part of the family mission. They go to some conferences together. They read more and more. But over time, homeschooling becomes the silver bullet for everyone to raise their kids. They start looking down on private schools. Then they're opposed to even completely Christian schools. Then they're opposed to college of any kind. Then they start questioning whether girls need to get anything beyond an 8th grade education. And finally, they won't fellowship with any family that doesn't see schooling children the exact way that they do. It's a purity spiral. You see, it just gets worse and worse. It's a legalism. It's this appearance of righteousness, but it's the denial of the power of righteousness. Now I can say, and all of you I'm sure would agree, that homeschooling is a gift from God, and there is nothing wrong with knowing early church history. There's great resources out there for learning about early church history. If you'd like, the elders can give you some resources. But what's wrong is that we as Christians in the West today lack the wisdom, the humility, and what I said last week, the self-control to be able to say no. Enough's enough. Draw the line there. I shouldn't go any further. We are largely, as has been said many times, a fatherless generation. We're what Michael Foster calls a bunch of clueless bastards without the discernment and balance that come from years of faithful discipline and instruction of a godly patriarch. And so we say yes to the purity spiral until it sucks us down its hole into a world of asceticism and as Colossians says, the worship of angels, or should we say demons, rather than obedience to God. James reminds us, however, that the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, considerate, submissive, the ESV renders that open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting and without hypocrisy. If you were going to learn about church history, one of the resources I would highly recommend is Dr. James White's podcast series on church history. Many times throughout that series, Dr. White said that Christian maturity is like life lived on the edge of a razor blade. It is so easy to fall off on one side or the other. You see again that pendulum swing back and forth. Now church, your elders aren't aware of any crazy purity spirals going on here or causing havoc in this congregation. But there are men in our church right now who may be just bored. They may want a new hobby horse. Maybe that would do the trick. Maybe something that they can investigate in. Maybe the next flavor of the month is what they need to finally find that satisfaction and contentment. There are also parents in this church who right now feel so far behind in discipline, in discipleship of their children, in devotion to God. And Satan loves to distract such people 
by getting them distracted with these higher forms of obedience. Oh, you need to read this guy, and you need to do this thing, and if you do this, it's a fast track to catch up with all these other brothers who you think are really far ahead when we're still stumbling and repenting every day too. And yes, that includes me. I'm going to talk to you about willingness in just a minute. And I told several brothers before the sermon started that this is so autobiographical. I am one man who has struggled mightily with being willing to serve the Lord in difficult situations, even recently. Learn from these exiles, brothers and sisters. Learn from the generations that followed them. They set here in Nehemiah a healthy trajectory. We want to correct the errors of the past, but be cautious because the tendency is for that pendulum to keep swinging and you have to know when to stop and say, this is the place of Christian balance. Read, study, apply the Word of God, thrive in the fellowship and the company of others, encourage your brothers and sisters here at Christ the King. And I would say, finally, in the words of that prophetess of moderation, crying out in the YouTube wilderness, bon qui qui, just don't get crazy. Some of y'all have seen that. Now, let's look at the text from this morning. What we're dealing with in chapter 11 and 12 is a problem that was mentioned all the way back in chapter 7, verse 4. Let me read that for you. Chapter 7, verse 4 reads this way in the Legacy Standard. After the wall was completed, we are told, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. So the law has been recited at this point. The covenant has been signed back in chapter 10. The people are sworn in. And all of this ceremony has happened for a city that no one dwells in. Well, I could say almost no one. If you look at the first verse of chapter 11 this morning, the officials of the people lived in Jerusalem. Now, this gives the impression that Nehemiah and his cabinet, you might call it, had moved into the city earlier on, likely during the construction period, to oversee what was happening but there were no volunteers to join them in making this a fully functional city of God again. And you can probably guess at some of the reasons. You would have had to sell your home and your land in the countryside. Many of those properties were at this point second and third generation. You remember it's been over 90 years since the first exodus from Babylon. And this is the only home that many of these Jews have known is in that Judean countryside. Packing and moving also included not just your immediate family, but an entire household. Remember, most Jews lived intergenerationally. There were grandparents, parents, children, grandchildren, oftentimes cousins, nieces, nephews. You can also consider that this move was into a renovation project, an ongoing construction site. In chapter 7, verse 4, we're told that the city was large and spaces, spacious, but the houses were not rebuilt yet. There was still more work to be done. They also were moving into a hotly contested piece of real estate. Think wars and rumors of wars. And they had to move without their farmland coming with them, trusting that the fellow Israelites that they were going to leave in the countryside would raise the proper necessities and they would be provided when needed. This was not an easy choice. Yet in order to create, again, that city of God where the rule of Yahweh would spread to the ends of the earth, the people take a tithe. They take a tithe of themselves. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And that's it. If you draw the short straw, that's it. You have to pack your bags, and you have to move. 
Now, don't miss that Nehemiah didn't come up with that plan. He's not running a cult here. The rest of the people, it says in verse 1, cast lots. Everybody cast lots. They decided to do this together. It was a congregationally run raffle, if you will. And everyone had to acknowledge that it was ultimately Yahweh who decided which families would relocate. In Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every judgment is from the Lord. Now you can't argue with that. It's the Word of God. Verse 2 then adds, The people blessed all the men who freely offered to live in Jerusalem. Was this a subgroup of those chosen to go by lot and they had a really good attitude about it? Or was it another group who just volunteered and raised their hands even though they weren't chosen? Hey, that guy doesn't want to go, but his lot fell. I'll take his place. The text doesn't make it plain, and both are possibilities. But the thing that is unmistakable is this. The people offer themselves freely to God for the sake of His kingdom and also for the sake of the entire community. The free offering of self to God for His kingdom and His people is the theme of this entire chapter and a half that we're about to look at. In terms of application, you could go a lot of different directions here. Church leadership should set the example. They should blaze a trail for the sheep, always being out in front. That's true. Christians should volunteer for missions with a willingness to move wherever in the world God wants them to move. That's true. Christ the King's new church planning strategy is going to be a lottery in which one in ten of you have to leave. <laughs> Some of you are sitting there thinking, that's a joke, right? <laughs> Beloved, God regularly asks His people to do hard things. How we respond to God's ask of us is of supreme importance to King Jesus. As you see here, it is a glorious thing to willingly accept God's lot for you, however it falls. We don't often think of chances of providence in this way. When things are good, it's easy to accept and take what comes from the hand of the Lord. But consider if you've been diagnosed with an acute illness... Or perhaps your spouse battles frequent sickness or has been disabled. What if you're in a prolonged season of singleness like Daniel prayed over this morning? What if you face wave after wave of financial trouble? What if you feel an unavoidable call to serve in overseas missions but you're terrified of it? What if you're, you have a lot of kids but God's assigned to you at this point in your life a small space in which to house them? What if your extended family thinks that you're in a cult? What if you're publicly slandered or you know that for what you stand for in the public square or at your business, you will be publicly slandered? What if you lose a child? Many of God's providences lead to grief, confusion, and even often the temptation to question the wisdom of God. I ask you this morning this question based on the way that many of these men responded to the lot that fell. Do you ever get to the place of a willing sacrifice? All right, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'm sick again for the third time this month. Jesus, what do you want me to do? I'm having trouble getting out of this debt. Jesus, what do you want me to do? I've been given a home that I don't love. Jesus, what do you want me to do? This is biblical willingness. It's an openness to God's providence that says, All right, Lord, this is from your hand. What do you want me to do? This is how Rebecca responded to the request to leave and marry Isaac, whom she'd never met. 
She says in Genesis 24, I will go. This is how the people of Israel brought in gifts for the making of the tabernacle. Exodus 35 says, with a willing heart. This is how the armies who aided Deborah and Barak responded to the call. They, in Judges 5, willingly offered themselves. <coughs> Those Israelites who left Persia with Ezra were willing to go to Jerusalem. That's from Ezra chapter 7. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, said that he preached the gospel voluntarily or willingly. Elders are to shepherd the flock of God among them willingly, 1 Peter 5. God sustains His people with a willing spirit, Psalm 51. And it is prophesied that the followers of Jesus will offer themselves freely to Christ in the day of His power, Psalm 110, verse 3. In doing so, we follow the well-trodden path of our Savior, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You can think of clung to. But he emptied himself by, and here's the important word for this morning's text, by taking, willingly accepting God's plan, which was that he take the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he went further and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nobody can claim here this morning, no matter how hard you have had it, that you've had it harder than Jesus. Jesus got the shortest straw. He got the hardest lot. When the lot was cast and it fell to Christ, he gladly and willingly raised his hand to say that I will and I am eager to go set my bride free no matter what it costs. In a sense, and I don't want to put words in the, mouths of our, in the mouth of our Savior, but in a sense, his response is, all right, Father, you're in charge of this whole mess and I'm at your service. What do you want me to do? The Supreme One above all creation submitted to the authority of the Father and was willing to serve and die for us. And He shows us that in this place of willing submission, true joy is found. Now go back to Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and then do what? Uphold me, strengthen me, sustain me with what? That willing spirit. The same willing spirit that Christ had. That's how we sustain ourselves. That willingness that comes from knowing Christ, seeing our salvation in Christ. Church, do you look at all of the providences of life with an attitude of a willingness to serve? Let me give you an example that I read about this last week in one of the books that we have at our home on child training. Here's an example that I think even the youngest person in this room can relate to. I read about a teenage girl, part of a large family, but confined to a small house. Her room was cramped, and she didn't feel like much of the world was really her private space. But one area she did take special pride in was in keeping her bed clean. It was always well made. It was tidy until her siblings needed some room to play a board game. The rest of the room was a mess. This was a free piece of real estate. They took advantage of it. Day after day, she would return to her room and find things out of order. And her frustration grew. She insisted that her brothers and sisters clean it up, oftentimes with anger in her voice, and they never did. She thought about telling her mom and dad, but she had been warned against tattling. And instead, what ended up happening was she grew bitter at God for not seeing and doing something about the problem. Then, she remembered that God is in control of even this little situation with her siblings and the board game on her bed. He had allowed this 
one thing to happen over and over again, perhaps even as a test, and she needed to be willing to act like Christ in each of these moments. So, she resolved to do the last thing likely that many of us would do. She told her siblings that she loved how much fun they were having playing the board games. She loved seeing them have that much joy. And she told them that they were welcome to play on her bed whenever they liked. And if they forgot to clean it up, she would gladly do so. Now just an aside for the young people in the room. The way that she responded will likely cause them to remember to clean the game up far more likely to remind them to prick their conscience than just berating them over and over and over again. Do your thing, do your thing, do your thing. And to that point, I would say that her response likely causes some consternation in some of us. She shouldn't just let them run over her like that. Dad should do a better job of disciplining those kids. Children should be taught to respect God's law and what it says about a person's private property. I agree, on all counts. And yes, we should teach our kids the law. We should teach them about private property, respecting other people's things. But fathers, do you teach your children that in order to fulfill the law, we're to love like Christ? Paul tells us that biblical love does not insist on its own way. Which is another way of saying Love is willing. Love does not insist on its own way, which means love is willing. That's what we see the exiles who willingly went into Jerusalem do. I won't insist on my own way. My community needs me to step up and serve. And I am willing. The rest of our text today since I've only dealt with the first two verses at this point, underscores this same motif. I want to give you a quick overview of chapter 11 and 12 and what you're going to see just briefly. We're going to cover a lot of text very quickly here. 11 verse 3 is the header to the names that moved into town. In verses 4 to 6, you see the sons of Judah who relocated to Jerusalem. After them, the sons of Benjamin are also lifted and listed in verses 7 to 9. Then in verses 10 to 14, the priests are listed, followed by the Levites in verses 15 to 18. And finally, a smattering of other people in 19 to 24. The final verses of chapter 11, verses 25 to 36, detail those families that stayed in the rural areas. And the first 26 verses of chapter 12 are devoted to a lineage of those priests and Levites who came up with the first wave of exiles. And I'll deal with that towards the end of the message. So after casting lots, the U-Haul trucks got moving and everybody got into their new locations. And I want you to notice a phrase that's repeated multiple times throughout chapter 11. In 11 verse 6, the men over the families of Judah are called what? Valiant men. In verse 11, or excuse me, in chapter 11, verse 8, those Benjamites are also called men of valor. That's in the ESV, which takes the Septuagint reading here. If you have an LSV, it'll take the Masoretic text reading, and it omits that, but it's present in the Septuagint reading of the text. Men of valor. Judah's called valiant men. Benjamites are called men of valor. And then the priestly families. In 11.14, they are called mighty men of valor. Now how does the word of God describe the willingness of those people who would risk their necks and prosperity to obey God and move into Jerusalem? The Hebrew word here is kayil. It's the word we translate in our text valiant. And in Hebrew it has the idea of a force of strength, might, Ability, efficiency, imagine a well-trained army. That's the idea of valiant men 
in these three verses in our text this morning. What were the people saying of these families who willingly volunteered to move into the city? These were mighty men. These were hard men. These were guys of gravitas. Is this starting to sound like a Father's Day sermon yet? Now before anyone objects by saying, here we go again. We're going to talk about masculinity and patriarchy and courage and gravitas. And I would ask that you be willing to hear me out. These men and families are described in this way because they were ready to serve the Lord and others. We all hate the servant leadership Trojan horse, which eviscerates the leader and puffs the servant. But again, here's somewhere where we need to watch out for the purity spiral. You already sense it. The pendulum swing that corrects so hard, it breaks the clock again. Central to all of Jesus' teaching. Let me say this again. Central to all of Jesus' teaching was a willingness to serve. There's just no question about it. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you, church of Jesus Christ. Rather, the one who is the greatest among you must become the youngest. And the leader like the servant. Notice he doesn't say the leader becomes a servant and gives up being a leader. He says the leader becomes like the servant. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I, that is Jesus, is saying this here. I am among you as the one who serves. That's from Luke 22. Throughout the history of the church, there's been a word that perfectly encapsulates this balance of both leadership and servanthood. And even includes in its virtuous definition, willingness. And that is the word magnanimity. Magnanimity, from the Latin magnus, meaning great, and animus, meaning mind. Great mind. Webster's authorized, uncastrated version of the dictionary, 1828, defines magnanimity as that elevation or dignity of soul which encounters danger and trouble with tranquility and firmness, which raises the possessor of it above revenge and makes him delight in acts of benevolence, which makes him disdain injustice and meanness and prompts him to sacrifice personal ease, interest, and safety for the accomplishment of useful and noble objects. That's what it means to be a leader who serves, to be magnanimous. And that's what Jesus was getting at in Luke 22. That's what these heads of houses in Nehemiah 11 are demonstrating, that they are magnanimous men. Think of an illustration outside of the Bible. Probably the best illustration I can think of is Aragorn of Gondor from the book trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. If your only relationship to Aragorn is in the Peter Jackson version of the movies, I'm sorry, that guy is not very magnanimous. The book version portrays a leader who knows who he is, he knows his calling, and he willingly uses his greatness, of which he has great confidence in, to serve others under him. He's the king. There's no question about it. Not in his mind or anybody else's. But his greatness is displayed throughout the entire trilogy in acts of benevolence, his disdain of injustice, his sacrifice of personal ease and interest and safety for the accomplishment of useful and noble objects. He's not proud, quite the opposite. He's not sinning because he knows he's an excellent sword fighter. He knows he's an excellent tracker. He knows he's a courageous leader. He's not proud because he knows those things. He's magnanimous because he knows them and uses them for the sake of others. And fathers, 
I say to you this morning that you were called by Christ to emulate the magnanimity of Jesus Christ, of a kingly line, of royal blood, with a mission to use the greatness of your nature to lead and serve. That's how those that were moving into Jerusalem are described. Brothers, is that you? Do you know who God made you to be? Do you understand and willingly accept His given place for you? By leading like Christ and serving like Christ, do your wife and your children sense your tranquility and firmness? That they see that you are above revenge in cases of discipline and the way that you carry yourself in the home? Do they see that you delight in acts of benevolence even when you are crossed by members of your own household? Brothers, are you ready to shut up the down with the patriarchy movement? Once and for all, then bring steadiness and joy back into your home. Create stability everywhere you go. Because Christ is calling us in Nehemiah 11 to emulate these men of valor, to be magnanimous. That's what you see, by the way, in Philippians 2, which I read earlier. A magnanimous Christ. For years, the church has tried to immunize us from seeing this in Jesus. Oh, Jesus never would have thought highly of himself. He would, he would have only thought lowly of himself. No, he wouldn't, because he wouldn't think a lie. Because Jesus is who he is, he is confident in who he is, and he knows that who he is is exactly what the people need in order to be saved. And brothers, you were made to emulate that Christ. You were made to emulate that Christ. Now as I conclude this morning, I want to look at this list of priests and Levites from chapter 12 just briefly and how it points to our purpose, the purpose of our willingness, our greatness in the Lord. It begins in chapter 12 with those who came up with Zerubbabel in the first wave of the second exodus. And if you follow all the way through those 26 verses, you're going to wind up in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Verses 1 through 9 are priests and Levites during the first return. Verses 10 through 11 is a genealogy of the high priesthood. Verses 12 through 21 are a genealogy of other priestly families. 22 through 26 are a genealogy of Levite families. Again, these seem like a bunch of verses full of unimportant names to us. But what was the purpose of after listing all of the names of those who moved back into Jerusalem and even those family households who stayed in the countryside, why go back to the priests and Levites starting at this second exodus and giving us another genealogy right as we're about to dedicate the wall and the city of Jerusalem? Why list the priestly classes all over again? This resettlement project, as you'll remember, and we said this at the very beginning of our study in Ezra and Nehemiah, is about the reestablishment of the right worship of God, even down to the smallest details. In verse 24, for example, the Levites who stand opposite one another are probably a call and response worship team commanded by King David in 2 Chronicles 8.14. Here... In some obscure passage of the Old Testament, we are reminded again, not merely of the Israelite telos, the end of all things, but of our telos. And even beyond the Christian end of all things, the end of all things at Christ the King Church in Anderson County. The reestablishment of the right worship of King Jesus right here in Clinton, Tennessee. This is what our willingness to serve God in season and out of season solidifies. This is what all those purity spirals steal us away from. This is what the magnanimous man is looking forward to more than anything else, and that is the right worship of Jesus Christ. 
Now, these priests and Levites are getting into their places. They're getting ready. They're getting set up. And we'll see next week. Everybody bursts out in song. And they're ready to worship God. Because the city is finally finished. This project is finally done. They are both ready and willing to worship. But week after week at Christ the King, we see families enduring tremendously difficult circumstances. I ask at the end of the service this morning, are you ready and willing to worship Jesus Christ no matter how the lot falls to you? Paul says, again from Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and petition, along with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Tammy and I heard a song lyric years ago that kind of encapsulates that passage from Philippians. Between the two of us, if one of us is having a hard moment, we'll often quote it to each other. Sweetheart, this is a moment made for worshiping. This is a moment made for worshiping. Are you willing? Are you willing to worship Christ? Even in those hard moments, worship Him then, brothers and sisters. Worship Him in your hardest moments. Give Him praise. Give thanks to Him as you cry out to Him. I remember when Toby Sumter came and spoke to us. He said, Lord, I need help. Thank you for this situation. Thank you. Thank you for this. You've got to help me. With prayer and thanksgiving. May the Lord grant each of you the peace that surpasses all comprehension. Just as He's promised each one of His children. Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it encourages us to be those willing sacrifices just like our Savior. Lord, we were made for greatness. Yes, our crowns go to You. Yes, we bow down and all glory at the end of time goes to You. But You made us to emulate that greatness of Christ Jesus here on this earth and that through that created way that You made each of us and then remade us in Christ, we were made to serve others. Would you please, by the power of your Spirit, put this heart into each one of us and let it begin with our spouses and in our homes with our children, spreading joy and life and light everywhere. And then may it work its way into this fellowship in greater and greater measure and into this city and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That's what you intended in Nehemiah, was that it go from the city on a hill and it spread all the way to the ends of the earth. We want to do the same, Jesus. Please comfort those who are suffering right now. Let the peace that passes all understanding guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.